Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, thank you for coming this evening. And uh, is that not working? Is that working now? Is that any better? Can you now hear me? Good. Well, that's a good start. Um, well, welcome. Thank you very much for coming. It's a tremendous honour to uh, be president of this society. Um, hopefully, you've received the programme for the rest of the year's uh, speakers, and I hope you'll be able to come. There will be uh, some more information on the website as we get closer to each event, and uh, and hopefully you'll enjoy all the all the rest of the programme if you can suffer this evening's presentation from me. Um, I'd like to thank Tony Merritt yet again for doing the catering for, for these events. And uh, I also wanted to mention the uh, Carers Trust, who's uh, the, my chosen charity for, for this year. And if you wish to contribute, you'll find something out there to drop your well-earned cash into. Um, the Carers Trust do a fantastic amount of work for the 12% of the population who are carers. And uh, I'm very pleased that Dave Philippa Russell, who chairs the Standing Commission on Carers, is also coming as one of our speakers to uh, let you know some of the fantastic work that is, uh, that is being done. Um, the meetings are held on a Wednesday or a Thursday. Some of them will be down at the Queen's as normal. And um, with no further ado, I think we shall get on. I have some, a couple of apologies from um, Suresh Patel and uh, Alan Watson. Now, Med Kai, it was, um, it was, the society was founded, as you know, on the 3rd of October 1828, having been conceived from the uh, Medical Book Society, which was formed in 1817. And um, I just having a look through the list of all the past presidents of the society, and it just gives a fantastic history of medicine in Nottingham. And it's with that theme of history, I would like to sort of talk to you this evening about the history of another medical establishment and address in SW7. As many of you may know, for the last eight years I've been spending a couple of days a week in London uh, working for the uh, Royal College of GPs in various roles. I was vice chair of council between 2004 to 7, and for the last five years I've chaired the professional development board. And just on the beginning of October, I took over as medical director for revalidation and uh, from Mike Pringle, who uh, is about to become president of the college in, in November. Now, the, um, the Royal College of General Practitioners is 60 years old um, next month in November. So I thought it was a good opportunity to talk to you about not just the history of the college, but also the building that we uh, lived in until August uh, 2010. The RCGP is both the youngest and uh, the largest of the medical royal colleges. It's now got 46,000 members. It was founded in 1852 as a college of general practitioners, and the journal The Practitioner described it as an outstanding event in the history of British medicine. And I think that claim can be best understood if we think about the history of general practice. And I'd just like to use a quote that uh, Claire Gerarda uh, used, and Claire's actually coming as one of our speakers later in the programme. Claire used at last week's RCGP conference in Glasgow. An age of austerity. 
an economy on its knees. GPs struggling to cope with changes against a backdrop of limited resources. Now, you might think I'm talking about today, but I'm not. Actually, that quote, that quote was, uh, came from the early years of the NHS. And so it was in that situation the College of General Practitioners um, was born. So when you think of that quote, there are very, very similar challenges that we face then as we face now. But maybe a little bit more about that later. Um, so I first of all wanted to talk to you about the building, which is, um, which is fondly remembered by many of us. Um, until August 2010, the Royal College of General Practitioners um, lived in uh, 14 and 15 Princes Gate, which included that house just there, which is number 15. And um, that's at the end of a very elegant terrace of Victorian houses. We had our neighbours, the uh, Iranian Embassy, and uh, further down that terrace, the Moroccan and the Ethiopian Embassies. Number 14 was actually two houses. It was converted into one in 1905, uh, from 13 and 14 joined together. And the rear of that house is, um, is, is a very large garden, um, Ennismore Gardens, which is one of the largest of the private gardens in, in London. The building has really got so many memories, and many of us, I suppose, remember it as our, with fear at the beginning, um, when we went into the long room for our MRCGP examination orals. And when you enter the building, as I'll show you some slides later, it's a really elegant entrance. And the first floor has a long room, which, which just looks lovely where we had our council meetings. But as you move further up, that elegance is lost. The next two floors are offices, and uh, they're fairly stark. And then you get to the top floor here, which are bedrooms, those little windows up there which um, I think I've probably slept in every, every one of those, those rooms over the years, some with ensuite and some without. And you do get to know your colleagues in a completely different light, first thing in the morning when you see them wrapped up in a towel walking from the bathroom. It's also quite interesting to see their reaction, because some people don't react quite the same way as you would imagine they would when, they are, when they've been spotted. Um, in, the, in their towel. Now, this is an aerial view of Prince's Gate, so it sort of shows you um, how it is now. And uh, you can see Prince's Gate there. It's quite close to some nice places in London, so there's Harrods and Harvey Nicks up there. Easy walking distance, which amused my wife when she rarely, she didn't come down very often, but she did occasionally, and uh, it was quite nice to do a bit of shopping. And then it's opposite Hyde Park, um, Hyde Park here. So that was just lovely to be able to walk out um, from the building and just have a wander across there to get five minutes breath between meetings. And some lovely views there from the, um, from, from the, from the bedrooms across in Hyde Park. And uh, from there, you sometimes saw the horses trotting by from the household cavalry. It was, it was all very nice. Now, I'd like you to, um, to, to sort of 
remember that in a moment because we will now move on to um, this is a, this is Princess Gate in 1847 when it was just being built. So when you think of how it looked then and how it looked now, you um, you see this there's a Kingston House here. Now that's a large mansion which was built in 1757. And that was demolished and a block of flats were put there in, uh, in 1937. Um, apart from that, it, there's the, the, the terrace here is much the same. And um, the West Terrace was finished in 1849, and that's the East Terrace of, uh, of Prince's Gate. It was designed by, um, who was it designed by? Let me just have a look to my notes here. So I've remembered some things and I've forgotten certain, certain bits. Harvey Lonsdale Elms, he actually designed the, um, the Liverpool St George's Hall as well. And the building was built by the same builders who uh, built the Albert Memorial just further down, down the road. The name Prince's Gate was given to it because um, there's a gate here, which is the Prince of, uh, Prince of Wales Gate, uh, which was new at that time. It had been just been built the year before. And uh, that was... Um, Prince of Wales then became Edward the, um, Edward the Seventh. Now, Kingston House has an interesting history. That was built um, for a well-known lady called Miss Elizabeth Chudley. Now, Miss Elizabeth Chudley is here. Now, she was a, uh, a girl about town, um, uh, had considerable of a scandal attached to her, had lots of uh, celebrity parties in Kingston House, and um, she, she was a mistress of the Duke of Kingston, hence the name of the house. And uh, she married him bigamously in 1769. And prior to that, she had had uh, quite a number of affairs, including... Uh, with King George II. So there's, there's always been some very colourful neighbours in Prince's Gate. Now, the first owner of, uh, of Prince's Gate, when it was built, brand new, was somebody called George Baker. And, um, and he used it as a family home for five years. And in that time, he would have been able to see the, um, the Crystal Palace exhibition. Uh, which was built directly opposite. So that would be the view that he would have seen um, from, uh, from 13 Princess Gate in 1851. All very different now. So the next owner was this chap, Julius Spencer Morgan. He was a, a, a very prosperous banker from New York who came to London in 1854 and rented... 13 Princess Gate from George Baker, and then subsequently bought it in, uh, in 1858. And he lived there until he died in 1890. When he came to London as a banker, he, was, he went into partnership with George Peabody, and then when George Peabody retired, he uh, developed his own bank, um, which was J.S. Morgan and Company. And when he died, his son, John Pierpont Morgan, him, uh, a very distinguished man, um, took over the building after that, and uh, 
he, he had a, an art collection which was worth about $60 million and brought it over from America and put it into Princess Gate, mainly for tax reasons. He moved it out in 1912 when the, when the tax laws changed. But, um, but in 1904, um, John Pierpont Morgan felt that the house wasn't big enough for him, and so he bought uh, the next-door house, number 14, and converted it into the one house in 1905. He also produced the long room, which is the room which stretches between 13 and 14 Prince's Gate, and uh, that hasn't changed since, since it was originally built, but he used that for his art collection. Uh, the only art collection that we had um, was, was the uh, portraits of the past, um, past presidents. So, J.P. Morgan died um, in 1913, and his son, uh, J.P. Morgan Jr., then took over the house, but he didn't live there. And, um, and it was in 1918 that J.P. Morgan Jr. decided that uh, he would offer the house to the American government for the American ambassadors to use. But it wasn't until 1929 that uh, the first American ambassador uh, took up residence. But then they stayed there until 1955. And uh, quite a number of uh, famous families lived there. I suppose the most famous of them all was the, um, was the, was the Kennedy family. Now that's a room as it was just, as, just before it became the American ambassador's residence. And, uh, and when, when, uh, when the American ambassadors took this place over, they decided to um, make it their own and, and requested some American heads on the front of the building. Now, rumour has it that they were expecting the heads of some famous Americans like Jefferson and other previous presidents, and uh, they got some Red Indian heads instead. And uh, you will see their uh, Red Indian heads across the, the front of the building. So there's a little bit of surprise, I think, as to, uh, as to what, what actually appeared. But, um, but, uh, but, it, but it, was actually, um, it was actually done by an American architect, so they couldn't blame the British. British for that. Now, as I say, the, um, the Kennedys were the most famous family who lived there, and uh, this is a plaque for, uh, which was put up in 1967, because um, John F. Kennedy actually had lived there, and, um, and that was put up in 1967, four years after his assassination. And that plaque was then unveiled by the um, then American ambassador to London, David Bruce. Now, what I've got for you next, I've been, I've been able to unearth some photographs of the Kennedys when they, when they lived in, uh, in London. And, uh, and, and, and this one is, is the 22-year-old John F. Kennedy with his 13-year-old brother Robert. And this is taken off one of the balconies at the back of Princess Gate. <coughs> Uh, overlooking, <coughs> overlooking the gardens. <coughs> and this is in the garden with the Kennedy clan. Quite a lot of them, really, aren't there? Um, you've, got, uh, now you've got Dad Joseph in the middle there. That one's John. There's Robert over there. Edward there. And uh, you have Eunice here. 
There's Mum Rosemary. And um, Kathleen's over at the end there. So there's, there's, that's, that's the Kennedys for you. And uh, this is another photograph taken of them when they're all dressed up to go out um, in 1938, taken in, uh, in Princess Gate. And um, we have Patricia there. And there's John, Rose, and there's Mum Rosemary. That's Joseph Jr. He was killed in an air crash um, in World War II. And, uh, and Kathleen there. So, um, so they, they all had quite a tragic history, really. And this is on the stairs in Prince's Gate. And uh, actually, it looks very similar to how it does now. And, um, uh, and, and there's John on the, on the left there, little Edward down there. Um, and this is a stairs where we used to have all our official photographs um, uh, after dinners and, and other, other, other events. And this is the view as it is now of the back of Prince's Gate. But actually, apart from the television aerials up there, it looks exactly the same as it did when, um, when, when the Kennedys lived there. And the, you see the balcony here, which, um, which uh, we saw the, uh, the two Kennedys looking over, on the, um, over to the garden. And this is where <coughs> the photograph was taken of the family, the family photograph. So that takes us through the history of who lived there. It was then used after that by the ITN uh, company, and, um, uh, and, and not terribly interesting, but uh, it was there until the college took it over in 1963. Now, I'd like to now focus perhaps on the, uh, on the development of the, of the Royal College of General Practitioners. And in 1950, the Lancet published a report was made by a visiting Australian doctor uh, about a per his personal survey of general practice at that time. And he had come over to this country prepared to admire and to learn, but is actually appalled by what he found. His report, which was published in The Lancet, painted a dramatic picture of exhausted and demoralised doctors. What has changed, you might ask. Um, but also he found hurried work and low standards, and that has certainly has, has changed. And his report really made it impossible for the medical establishment to ignore what was happening uh, in general practice. And it was in th with this background that the idea of a college for general practitioners began to be expressed. And uh, some of the influential leaders uh, started thinking about what we could do to create a, a college. Um, sharing the belief that what we needed was an academic body which would support stand, high standards in, of care, education and research, such as that similar to the other medical colleges. And in 1951, a small group of doctors considered to form a steering committee to plan such a college. And that included uh, doctors Fraser Rose, Geoffrey Barber, Talbot Rogers and John Hunt, and I discovered today that, um, that Fraser Rose's son, Don, is here in the audience, which is fascinating. Um, now, Fraser Rose and John Hunt wrote a letter to the, um, to the BNJ in 1951, 
I'll read it out. I'm not quite sure you can read it clearly enough, but uh, I'll read it out. There is a college of physicians, a college of obstetricians and gynaecologists, a college of nursing, a college of midwives, a college of veterinary surgeons, all of them royal colleges. There's a college of speech therapists, a college of physical education, but there is no college or academic body to represent primarily the interests of the largest group of medical practitioners in this country, the 20,000 general practitioners. Many practitioners sadly felt the lack of such a body when the negotiations about the National Health Service were taking place. Mm. Preliminary discussions are now being held in the General Practice Review Committee of the British Medical Association about the possible <coughs> development of such a college of general practice to help practitioners in the same ways that the Royal Colleges have helped their own fellows. Such a proposal must not interfere at all with the present qualifying examinations or with the many other activities of the Royal Colleges. It should be able to help practitioners in a great many ways by supervising their education and postgraduate work, by improving the standard and status of general practice, and by acting as a repository for its traditions, all at little or no cost to the taxpayer. We are anxious to collect evidence upon the subject and a possible, of a possible College of General Practice. If any of your readers would have suggestions or comments to make for or against appraisal, uh, would they please communicate with us? And that was uh, from Fraser Rose and John Hunt. And, uh, and, and this is Dr. Fraser Rose, um, whose name is, is remembered not only for uh, being the father of Don, but also, um, but also for uh, the prize for the highest mark in the MRC GP examination. And this is John Hunt, and uh, he was the first honorary secretary of the college, and he's remembered for his room, which is a John Hunt room, which was in Prince's Gate. And uh, that's a really lovely room with uh, views straight across the, um, the gardens there. And we used to have lots of meetings there. In fact, I chaired many professional development board meetings there, usually with my back to the, um, to the window, so I couldn't stare outside. Now, a steering committee was established um, in February 1952. It had seven general practitioners and five consultants. And the consultants were known to be sympathetic to the uh, idea of a college. That, well, that view was in a minority amongst the medical establishment at that time. And the steering committee met eight times. <coughs> at the eighth meeting in November 1952, a college of general practitioners was legally constituted and a foundation council was formed, which had the task of drafting the original constitution to be presented at its first AGM in November 1953. And since then, we've had a, an AGM every November since then. This is the uh, original foundation council with Chairman George Abercrombie, uh, Vice Chairman Fraser Rose, Lynn Hughes as the Honorary Treasurer, and John Hunt as the um, first Honorary Secretary. And so in, in, in 1953, following the formation of the, uh, of the Foundation Council, there was undergraduate and postgraduate committees formed, and, um, and they started producing a report for the first AGM, which was held uh, in 1953, November 1953, and you'll notice the address of Blackfriars Lane, which was the uh, Society of Apothecaries, because that was the, 
they were friendly towards the idea of a, a college of, of general practitioners, and um, and uh, and that they, they housed us for the first few years. In 1953, foundation membership was offered, and uh, as long as doctors could satisfy certain criteria, and um, 1,655 doctors joined as foundation members. Remember, we now have 46,000. So the first foundation members were all given a medal in, uh, in, in 2002, which is our 50th anniversary. And they were given that by Leslie Southgate, sat in the middle there. She was the president in 1952. And these are the, uh, the foundation members who came to receive their medal. Does anybody recognise themselves there, just out of interest? Is any foundation members here in the audience? I did wonder, so I just, just wondered if anybody would recognise themselves as, 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 as foundation members. And this was taken on the stairs where you saw the Kennedys, of course. Now, the first president was elected in, uh, at AGM in 1953, um, and that's, uh, that's William Pickles. And William Pickles um, is remembered for the Pickles, the annual Pickles Lecture, which happens at every AGM. And I suppose following the foundation of the, of the college, the uh, medical establishment gradually accepted the fact that a college of general practitioners was useful. In 1962, the college became incorporated. And this is the first foundation, this is the first council of the Incorporated College in 1962. And this was taken at 41 Cadogan Gardens, which is our first, first building that we occupied um, at that time. Moved into that building, I think, in 1958. Formal recognition as a Royal College came in 1972, when uh, the College received its Royal Charter. And uh, the Duke of Edinburgh became president in that year uh, to celebrate the, uh, the achievement of, a, of, of becoming a, uh, a royal college. But, of course, we soon ran out of space in Cadogan Gardens, and then they started a search for more longer-term premises. There was all sorts of plans as to where to move to, and um, there was, there was a, a quite well-defined plan to move to a building in Lincoln's Inn, but that uh, proved to be too expensive. Many people could afford to work in, in, in Lincoln's Inn of the Surgeons, I think. So, so we certainly couldn't afford it. Um, now, um, so, so then the search began, as I say, and, and the, the treasurer's wife, um, Mrs. Um, what's her name? Mrs. Thelma Lynn Hughes, found um, that 14 Prince's Gate was up for sale. And, uh, and so the college thought this was a good place to go to and bought the freehold of 14 Princess Gate for £175,000 in 1960, in July 1962. That was quite a good investment. Now, interestingly, actually, when, when we purchased the building, apparently there was a, still a telephone line, a direct line straight through to the White House. Um, and that was, that was soon disconnected, I gather. And then in 1976, there was the opportunity to by the next door house, number 15, uh, from the owner who was a Mr. Senley. And the agreement was that he could um, 
he could live on the uh, ground floor and first floor flats for 12 years. Complication arose because Mr. Sendley left his wife just before the end of that lease, and his wife stayed there and wants to live there. And so there then followed quite a messy legal battle, um, uh, which the college eventually had an out-of-court settlement in 1992. And it was then that the college owned the freehold of 13, 14, and 15 Prince's Gate, as we are, as we are now. So now I thought I'd show you a picture of some presidents. Uh, this, is a, this is the president, so in Roger Neighbour, centre stage there, was, uh, was president. And uh, there we have Dame Leslie Southgate, Lottie Newman, Stuart Kahn there, Sir Michael Drury, John Horder there. John sadly died earlier this year at 92. Um, and John, I remember playing the piano beautifully at uh, some of the college events and was a really great artist and you can still buy his, uh, his, his watercolours of Prince's Gate and uh, there's Sir Dennis Pereira Gray back there. Now, college business continued quite uneventfully until something happened in 1980. 11.30 on the morning of Wednesday the 30th of April 1980 the chairman of council then, Alistair Donald, was on the phone to somebody in Dundee, a colleague in Dundee. The conversation got suddenly interrupted by gunfire. And it is alleged, Alistair said, wait a minute, Jimmy, I seem to be under fire. <laughs> the colleague in Scotland replied, I know what you mean. <laughs> anyway, that started... A, a chain of events, and I thought I would just show you. So you've heard enough of the embassy started at two o'clock with three shots from the direction of the embassy. At seven o'clock, three more shots were heard, and almost immediately, an unseen bullet was taken in. The police activity around the building grew to an unprecedented level. Then, two policemen carrying a stretcher ran out. Marksmen slipped in behind them. They ran doubled up to keep out of the line of fire.
interesting wasn't it let's go back to more mundane things now we had lots of people coming to dinner in in Princess Gate and there's Ted Heath um, we also had Tony Blair David Blunkett David's actually coming to do a talk for us um, later in the program and uh, of course we always remember this man this is the youthful Kenneth Clark who in 1989 I couldn't find a photograph of him actually delivering his speech. I think it's been destroyed. But um, um, he gave a speech in 1989 when the new GP contract was uh, being developed and, um, and used the term general practitioners nervously holding on to their wallets um, when faced with change. Now, 
we miss Printer's Gate. Um, actually, that, if you see that, that, that parasol there, it's actually next door in the Iranian Embassy. Um, a little bit more open now, so we, we can actually see them. And they still always had a policeman outside, and it was great, because I used to drive my car down there, leave it outside, and I could see the policeman. I'd say, just, just watch that car. Never mind the embassy, just watch that car. And, um, and that was always, always fun. Um, didn't seem to have much of a sense of humour, though. Um, so as you can see, the, the, the terrace there is about, uh, is about the sort of social activities in the college. And uh, the college is not just a building, it's about people. And um, we used to have our summer reception there, we used to have meetings outside, um, and, and it, was, it was all, all very nice. And I thought I'd just show you a few pictures now of Prince's Gate as it was before we left. So uh, just, to just to remind you what it looked like, this was the, um, this was the entrance as you came through the door. Um, and the uh, members' room just opposite there. These are the stairs, which uh, we've seen photographs taken on. And as you climb the stairs, when you look upwards, you, that was a sort of view that you had. It's all very ornate and very nice. As you walked up towards the long room, which is here. And uh, this is where J.P. Morgan held, had his art collection, and this is where our president's portraits were hung. Uh, at that time, the room was set up as a, for, for a lecture. It was a multifunctional room. We had our council meetings there and, and four more dinners. Uh, amazing how the staff could just suddenly turn that place around from a lecture to a formal dinner and back to a council meeting in, uh, in, in remarkably quick time. This was the members' room, and that went straight over onto the, um, onto the terrace. <coughs> and uh, upstairs is the president's flat. And we were very privileged. The president let us use it as officers um, at the very top floor. And uh, you could go onto the balcony. had fantastic views across Hyde Park. Um, it's far too good just for the president. So uh, they were very nice and, uh, and let us use it. Now, as you know, we've, we've moved out. We moved out in August 2010, sold the building, and uh, moved into our temporary accommodation in Bow Churchyard, um, waiting on the finishing 30 Euston Square, which we bought on the sale of Prince's Gate uh, in 2010, but that needed an awful lot of money spending on it. And um, this is our new building, um, or at least this is the building in process of being <coughs> renovated. Um, 30 Euston Square. Euston, this is the road just here goes, there's Euston Station just opposite there. Um, and um, this building took about 25 years to build at the beginning of the 20th century. Got seven floors, building built in phases, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's a really fantastic, fantastic building. This is the front of the building with, um, with Euston Road front. It's opposite the Welcome Trust, and we're moving in in two weeks' time. We should have been in this week, but, um, but there's a bit of rain in the early part of the uh, summer. The builders say stop them working. It's their excuse. Um, it's got 121,000 square feet. Enormous building. We've moved all our exam centre in. Well, the exam centre will go in there that we used to have in Croydon and all the other buildings. So we've just been one, one building. The building was first used as, um, as a headquarters of the London, Edinburgh and Glasgow Assurance Company. And then it... Um, it was then transferred over to the National Amalgamated Approved Society. Uh, so it's always had a sort of health connection. And uh, 
the amalgamated societies ceased to exist when the NHS started in, uh, in 1948, and it was taken over by the government for the uh, Department of Health and Social Security, who, who were in that building for quite a number of years. It then went into private hands for a few years and then was left empty for quite a few <coughs> years until the college, college bought it in, um, in 2010. The building's got grade two listed status. I'll show you a few pictures just inside. I mean, these are just photographs as it was when we took it over. Um, and it's a very ornate building. There's some fantastic architecture within there. Lots of historical significance. Just wonderful rooms. With all this will stay as it is because it'd be just, you know, it's obviously a listed building and, uh, and it'd be just great. And the luxury will be the top floor. We will have bedrooms with ensuite facilities. 40 of them. Isn't that wonderful? Anyway, general practice has changed a lot in those 60 years. And just the last three slides I just wanted to show you was just an example of what general practice looked like in the 1950s. This is a surgery in the 1950s. You might think it looks like some of the surgeries now, actually. I'm sure it looks like one I visited a few years ago in Nottingham, but um, it is in the 1950s. And um, this one in the 1960s, and this is the start of the multidisciplinary team um, with nurses wearing frilly caps. Um, but the nurses, it was nurses now working in primary care as well as, as, well as GPs. And finally, my own practice in Eastwood. So things have certainly changed, and I suppose despite the King's Fund report earlier this year, um, general practice is no longer the cottage industry that it was in 1952 at the birth of, uh, the, birth of the college. At the time when the college was born, there were doubts about the future of general practice. I think we can now be clear that it's the NHS that can't survive without general practice. Clearly there are new challenges ahead, but the college's aim remains for all general practitioners to support the general practitioner as the personal doctor at the heart of the health service to ensure good standards of care to our patients and contribute to the academic life of medicine. Thank you very much for your attention, and I hope that gives you a review of of the last 60 years of general practice.